people that are trying to conduct business in a very transactional way are probably not going to be as successful as people trying to conduct business in a very genuine, sincere, and authentic and credible way. And the way that happens is to, that's why we called it the Business is Human podcast, to be really human about it, to build those real relationships. Behind the scenes, it was a small group of people that were doing everything. Slow is smooth and smooth is fast. I want to know how this insane growth actually happened. What are you doing when no one's around, no one's looking? Are you just showing up and doing the minimum? Or are you approaching it like a pro? Be a student of the game. All right, go-to-market listeners. This episode is brought to you by Postal. Postal allows you to reach the signature line faster. It is the best offline solution to help delight your prospects with gifts, direct mail, and branded swag. And the team told me, if you go to postal.com slash GTM to request a demo, they will send you the best, I'm talking the best, chocolate chip cookies you've ever tasted. So if you're looking to close deals faster, looking to build pipeline, and looking to interact with just an incredible team and technology, go to postal.com slash GTM and show your love. What's going on, GTM listeners? Thanks for rocking with us for the next 40 minutes. Appreciate you lending us your eardrums wherever you're listening to it, whether it's the gym, the office. We appreciate you taking the time to level up everything, go to market, talk sales, marketing, customer success, ops enablement, product, and hiring. We do our best to speak through stories and bring you real operators that have been in the trenches, built businesses, been part of building successful businesses. And we've got a fantastic guest lined up today. I am joined by Dan Reich. Dan, welcome, man. What's up, Scott? Good to be on. Good to have you, my friend. And where in the world are you right now? I'm in the wonderful, lovely state of New Jersey, down by the Jersey Shore. Jersey Shore. Nice, nice. And is summer still holding holding strong on the Jersey Shore? Is it starting to turn? No, it's good. Thankfully, spending time at the beach, on the water for another month or so, and then it's ski season. Hell yeah. Mountain of choice, typically, where do you escape to? I had north to southern Vermont, mountain called Mount Snow, where I volunteer on ski patrol up there for about, I've been doing it for about 20 years, except for the past two years with, uh, with a four and a two-year-old now running around. Yeah, makes sense. A little less time for, for ski patrol. I, have they been on the mountain yet? The four-year-old has. I bribe her with presents and it's working. <laughs> I'm, I'm like Pavlov's dogs getting her brainwashed to believe that skiing is the greatest thing on earth. And, and so, <laughs> so that'll be the plan for the second also. Skiing equals treats and bribes. That's a good for way sure. to At least for now. <laughs> I love it. Uh, so quickly for the listeners, uh, Dan is a serial entrepreneur in every sense of the word. Uh, he's an investor. He's a writer and has really been building companies since he was a teenager uh, some of those companies include Tula Skincare, which was acquired by Procter and Gamble, which is insane. I've got a lot of questions about how you structure an acquisition with such a behemoth of a, a company. Uh, also, built Troops uh, AI, which many of our listeners will know, being revenue leaders, uh, which was acquired by Salesforce. Uh, Spinback as well, which was acquired by Buddy Media. And then acquired by Salesforce again. So the double Salesforce acquisition. Uh, and he's now a co-founder of Dibs Beauty, uh, which is backed by L. Catterton and is building more companies as we speak. 
Um, and he also invests through his family office, Ride Capital. Um, and your background is originally in electrical engineering. Is that right? Yeah, electrical and computer engineering, which is incredibly useful or useless, depending on the day for consumer <laughs> companies. But certainly for software companies, it's more helpful. Yeah, I imagine. Uh, do you find you use it at all in the beauty world or is it more just kind of the way it taught you how to think that's helpful in that world now? Yeah. Yeah. My statement before it wasn't totally true. In short, it's wildly helpful for really anything. Cause it's, it, it's, it was really mental gymnastics. It's a way of thinking it's problem solving. It's critical thinking and, and, uh, collapsing really complex scenarios and equations down to first principles yeah. and really any great business, any great entrepreneur does that really well in spite of any pushback that they may get or hear from naysayers because you often will. But if you can distill things down to the core essence, then you could really um, stick to that truth and build against that truth. Totally. That's something I, kind of picked on, up on pretty early in my career, like all the best executives I worked for, all the best founders I worked for, all the best account executives, basically across the board, their ability to grasp incredibly complex ideas and distill them into like layman terms was like the superpower that seemed to be a red thread to everyone who was having success. Yeah. You have to be able to, otherwise you just get caught up in the noise and the complexity that oftentimes is not as complex as one may think. Uh, so yeah, engineering for me was wildly helpful and, uh, you know, use the things there and things I've learned and how to learn every single day. Yeah, it's actually something I, tr I try and do when I see, you know, founder pitches is after they're, they're given their demo and their deck, I'll just try and be like, is this like one sentence kind of sum it up? And if, then I'll kind of know if I'm, I'm with them or not uh, based on their reaction. Um, but so one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, because I think you're unique in the sense that you've built in B2B, you've built in software, and now you've built B2C, you know, in, in beauty. And I imagine also with your engineering wheels you look for patterns you look for things that flow between the two that that we can steal in maybe b2b um and vice versa and one of those things is influencer marketing which traditionally we all think of instagram models we think of you know the the consumer side um but it's strange that b2b companies don't take more pages out of the consumer playbook. You know, it works. And I think people are just waking up to it as, you know, LinkedIn exploded over the last decade and you have these massive influencers that have way more of a following than like any company. Um, but would love to hear a little bit about your, your thoughts on how you think B2B companies can steal some of these uh, strategies that work on the, the B2C side. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, for the record, I'm not the first to steal tactics and strategies from the consumer world and apply them into technology. In fact, the first time I heard about somebody doing that successful was with a uh, smaller company then now called Microsoft. Um, and I remember it was in their early days 
when they were developing this software that would run on computers so that people would have better user interfaces for it, uh, which they went on to name Windows. Uh, I think right around that time, and I might be butchering this, but right around the time they hired an executive from Pepsi to help them think through marketing and, and branding. And when that executive came over, he was the one that helped them rethink how they package and name and, and market these products and was really one of the people that oriented their product branding around Windows and some of the names that we hear Microsoft uh, have in market today. So, you know, not the first to do it, but there are unquestionably a lot of tactics and strategies that B2C companies can steal from B2B and B2B companies can steal from, from B2C. So um, I'll give you two examples. When we were building Tula's skincare, we leveraged influencer marketing pretty heavily. And, and so when we think about influencer marketing, what does that mean? That means partnerships with quote influencers or celebrities that one can give product to, and then they can tout it in market. And years ago, this was often done with PR firms. You'd hire a PR firm. They'd go help you get in front of maybe half a dozen of key influencers. You'd give them the product and then hopefully they would talk about it uh, publicly it'd be featured in a magazine and so on. And for years, that model has been copied over and over and over again. And even with social media, it was still copied and, and brands would hire like a person to go find these people as a side project. And it wasn't really a deliberate effort where at Tula, we reimagined that entire thought exercise. And we said, what if we treat that as its own dedicated channel? And we built almost like a BDR team against that channel. And we'd have a team of people reaching out to thousands of these people with top of the funnel metrics and then looking at how those outreach uh, convert into conversations and how those convert into uh, trials or engagements and how those trials and, and engagements convert into performance. And then from there, double down on what's working. So we really thought about it as a funnel with metrics and KPIs. I think we were probably the first brand to do it that way. And we we really use BDR and SDR strategies that one would see in SaaS companies. And it worked really, really well. In fact, at the time of exit with Tula, and we were doing about 140, 150 million in sales. Half of that, more than half of that revenue came from e-commerce and more than half of that was driven through that influencer channel. So BDR thinking applied in the consumer world when people were never thinking about it that way. Um, flip flip side of that different example taking from consumer and applying it in in B2B is also influencer marketing. And I'll credit my co-founder from Troops, Scott Britton, with this, but he came up with a few ideas that took cues from word of mouth and influencer marketing. Um, one of them being kind of what you and I are doing right now, a podcast. We had our own podcast called the Business is Human Podcast. And many people originally thought about the podcast as a place where we can share content about um, what we're doing and why and how important it is. In reality, um, Scott was really targeting decision makers at our prospective companies you're we trying to sell into and getting them to join the podcast so that when we were doing the BDR outreach, there was already a relationship there. We were able to point to the person's boss or boss's boss's boss and say, look, we already have a relationship. We're already engaged there. Uh, you should buy from us. And in many ways that worked. And beneath that and, and the entire time, we were also looking to engage with 
other B2B leaders. We would give them demos of a product. We'd ask for their thoughts and advice. We'd ask them to share what they thought on social media because the business social network of LinkedIn was increasing pretty rapidly in terms of engagement, follower accounts per, per person and so on. So LinkedIn started to look and feel a lot more like Facebook in that way. And we leaned pretty heavily into it. And in fact, most of the customer acquisition that we saw at Troops in the early days was from that word of mouth marketing, less from the cult outreach and BDR marketing. So we really felt like building the buzz and building the brand would pay huge dividends. And, and it did, which is also why at Troops we had one of the reasons we think really incredibly strong net dollar retention. A lot of the people we were working with felt bought in, felt loyal to the brand, and certainly we had to perform and execute. But uh, applying that word of mouth influencer marketing as well on the B2B side really, really worked in the early days. Yeah. So two, two great examples. I love that you had a dedicated BDR team reaching out to all these influencers. Did you Was that like overseas? Did you... Uh, like outsource that? How did that actually operationally work? It was mostly in-house. We had a few part-time people working remotely, really not much overseas because again, at the time we were one of the few people thinking about it that way. So for us, it was less about getting kind of cost efficiencies and really just more about doing the work in a methodology and approach that others were not. Um, and, And that focus on thinking about that effort as its own standalone channel really gave us the discipline and let us build that muscle into the organization so that as we did scale, we were able to build even a bigger team around that approach. If you look at brands today doing that, yeah, you're right. There are a lot of brands now doing that and outsourcing a lot of that outreach to folks overseas. But at the time, not many people were doing that. Well, one of the reasons I love it is because that's it's actually repeatable and scalable, you know, like once you back into your numbers of like, okay, how many messages do we have to send to get someone's attention based on their attention? What does that lead to? It's just like the funnel metrics we all know in BDR land, you can then, you know, turn the knob up and down based on how much demand you want to want to create. So that's, that's brilliant. And so the podcast play, we ran this at outreach as well. And I think Max and I were under the assumption that we created that play, but I know Max knows Scott pretty well. So maybe, maybe we're getting blown up on this podcast that maybe that was, that was borrowed <laughs> from, from you guys at, at troops, but it was extremely effective either way for us at, uh, at outreach. That's why we created the, the sales engagement podcast in the first place was to have those conversations with CEOs, CROs who wouldn't give us the time of day, but they would on the podcast. Yeah. I mean, I think the, I think the broader meta, meta point is people that are trying to conduct business in a very transactional way are probably not going to be as successful as people trying to conduct business in a very genuine, sincere, and authentic and credible way. And the way that happens is to, that's why we called it the business is human podcast, to be really human about it, to build those real relationships. And there are no shortage of ways one can go about doing that. But um, in, in any instance where we were successful with our customers, there's a greater than 95% chance that that happened as a result of us doing the hand-to-hand combat and being authentic and engaging in really not a scalable means of uh, engaging in sales or customer success. But again, that planted the seeds for having really loyal and sticky customers. Yeah, it's about creating those moments or pockets where you can build an authentic relationship without having to have an ask or any sort of commercial discussion. And like the more moments you can create, you know, 
the the luck goes up, you know, that that maybe in those discussions of authentically showing up, there will naturally become a a commercial element to it when people start leaning in. Yeah, some of our some of our best salespeople were our customers um, who would I can think of one, for example, Ziv Palet at AppSwire. I felt like every week somebody, a new prospect was coming in because they heard about us through him who was sharing about how awesome we are and, and being specific about it on, on LinkedIn and his social media platforms. But you think about that means of marketing communication. When you build a brand, any brand, technology, software, consumer, that way, that I think is really how you build the, the right foundation. One of our board members, um, Warren Michaels, founder of Mashery, which he sold to Intel, he would talk about it through the lens of, of a religion. Like in the early days, you're building a religion. You need people really to care, to, to care in a meaningful way. And again, you juxtapose that with brands that aren't thinking about it that way. And it is very obvious how transactional they might be. And buyers today see right through that. And they would much rather work with a partner and somebody that's being overly transactional. It feels like the red thread through this is like the authentic, uh, authenticity piece. And this is one of the things I, I wanted to ask you is where does this fall down? Like, let's say you're starting a MarTech company today. Do you approach the Justin Welsh's of the world, the Dave Gerhardt's of the world? You know, we've had them as, as guests. They're awesome. They have this huge following. Do you go and like cut them a check or set up like a referral fee or does that not work? Um, and I'll give like an example that I think about all the time. When I was super active on LinkedIn, got a lot of like, was generating a lot of buzz a few years ago, Microsoft approached me and they were like, write this blog post, blow it up through your channels um, and we'll give you, you know, it was like a decent amount of chunk of change. So I was like, sure, I'll write a blog post, take me a couple hours. And, you know, I, I pushed it out through my channels, but you could just tell that it's like, what's what's Scott doing with Microsoft? And he's talking about something that's not fully his normal self and it didn't perform that well. And I was like, you know, kind of like, ah, oh, well, I hope you're, I hope you're happy. And if anyone from Microsoft is listening, I hope you're happy with the the result. But like, you know, there is that piece that it's a, it's a fine line to walk, you know, and what are your, your views on actually paying people? Does that work in the B2B landscape? It is a fine line to walk. And let's talk about it through the lens on the consumer side for a minute, because it does translate, I think, incredibly well. We, we would do that all the time at Tula and even now at Dibs. We would, we would try to work with a lot of people we thought would align with our brand and would, and would do well in terms of engagement and sales. But ultimately, you can't really know. And so you test and experiment. And sure enough, some work and some don't. And why is that? Well, when you peel back the onion, what you quickly realize is the people that work are genuine, they're sincere, they're credible. The people that don't work are overly saturated they're, um, in terms of their commercial commercial viability. They're promoting a ton of products. Mm -hmm. um, they're not engaging. They're not credible. It's kind of surface level. People don't know who they really are. So it all comes back to like, you have to be authentic and credible and people can tell people aren't mm -hmm. dumb, much like people knew that what you wrote was probably not in line of with who you are and what you typically write about. And the same is true in B2B. Not a big Excel guy. You know, that's not, not the vibe I, I give off, I think. <laughs> yeah, totally. And, and, and so I think that translates incredibly well also to B2B. I think, you know, I talked about it earlier, but 
there are a lot, there are a lot of companies that are doing these party rounds of the who's who of investors and advisors. And, and I think it works if the, if there's alignment between the company and those individuals where they can add value, they want to lean in and help. Um, if not, it comes off as overly performative. Like mm-hmm. people know that someone's got an advisor role at company A, B, and C, but you can tell pretty quickly if they're genuine or sincere or not. Uh, same is true of board members or good teammates. It's like the people that lean in and are engaged when they do that, things work. Otherwise, you can tell pretty quickly how uh, in, insincere it is. And if you're a company or founder that's doing that party round and you're overly saturated, well, like people will know pretty quickly. And then it's like, you start to, at least in my mind, it's like, you start to wonder, is your product really good? Like, is this just a way to, to mask over or gloss over um, your inability to sell your product? You're effectively just bribing people to promote you. Um, And again, that's not the rule per se. And it's probably not true for all of these companies, but I think there is a balance between um, getting the right investors, advisors on board that uh, that are aligned and are going to do the work versus doing it a way that's too saturated and too performative. Because again, people can tell. It's so funny when like your natural instinct goes up so fast. And if, if you're getting that feeling where it might not be a fit, everyone else is getting that feeling like tenfold. Um, but that's, that's interesting. I think we're definitely going to see a rise of it. I think the playbook's still getting, getting built uh, with how those relationships are are going to be structured um not to like belabor this kind of point um but do you think that equity is the route for b2b like giving these influencers a little bit of equity do you think it's cash do you think it's a referral fee uh where do you think uh, like i guess incentives align the best yeah, I think the answer is it all depends, right? And and that dependency is based on the on the on the person. So, for example, if I was building a new database company and I had an opportunity to bring on board the founder and CEO or the CEO of Snowflake, mm-hmm. um, yeah, I would be inclined to give that person equity and um, hope that that person were to be engaged. But um, if it were you know, not to be pejorative to any one person role, if it were some mid-level salesperson at, you know, just another tech company, you know, like less interesting. Ultimately, as we all know, as startup employees or colleagues, equity is only worth something if you have a good amount of it and if the company has an outsized uh, exit. And that is very, very, very rare. So what happens is, and I've been approached with this opportunity as well. People are now getting approached for these advisor roles for very little equity. And then often the company will ask for things like write about us once a month on social media or put it on your LinkedIn profile or like three or four other deliverables. And back to the comment earlier, and I've seen this with Tula and Dibs, when a brand or company is designing a program that is at the onset transactional and isn't peeling the onion back and going deeper with that person, it will show and it will fail. Um, I remember I signed up, I tried one of these things and I quickly realized this isn't going to work for me. It's not going to work for them. And so I stopped and now I won't do any of those unless I'm actually investing my own money and want to roll up my sleeves and be a little bit helpful because that's the only way it will work. 
And so again, to answer your question, like I think it can work if it's the right alignment of a person and comp and company. And for some people that might be cash, for some people that might be equity, for some people that might be a referral dimension of cash, it all depends so long as the alignment is there. I think it's a, a solid uh, viewpoint and agree with if you're not willing to part with your own cold, hard cash, you shouldn't be taking advisor equity because you're parting with your time, which is money at the end of the day anyway. Um, so I think that's a good rule of thumb. Uh, all right. I want to uh, transition. You know, This is a story-based podcast, uh, and I know you've got some good ones. I'd love to start with the time period, and we'll fly you back to this time period where you actually lived through two M&A events in one calendar year, uh, which is insane, other than all the personal <laughs> craziness that must have been going on inside of your head. Uh, walk me through that that time period. Yeah, that was that was a crazy time period. It was also during COVID, working from home and for a period of time at my in-laws when we were kind of homeless. We had sold our apartment and couldn't buy a new place or move into a new place in New York City because literally that week COVID shut down. But yeah, that was a crazy year. And to rewind the clock a little bit, we had as an executive team or a board, board rather at Tula decided that once we start, hit a certain milestone and threshold in sales, we would hire a banker and go to market and sell the company. And um, on the troop side, for anyone that's used troops knew and knows that we went really deep integrating these two companies, Salesforce and Slack, because we have this vision that work would look very different. It looked much more human. And, and so inevitably we needed to suck out the most important data from your organization, which we know mostly resides in Salesforce and put it into this operating system where people are spending most of their time Slack. And so then Salesforce buys Slack for $30 billion and we were having conversations with them as well. And so um, one of those conversations led to M&A. We thought that we would be um, getting acquired by Salesforce. And I also thought Tula would be getting acquired. And both of those things were tracking really, really well. And then right around the same time, um, Tula got hit with a frivolous class action lawsuit claiming that probiotics, and if you know the brand, it's based on probiotics and superfoods, um, claiming that probiotics was a risk and one of these troll-like firms. So we had to deal with that, which we did, but that took M&A off the table in my mind after thinking for sure this is going to happen. And on the troop side, as we were engaging in conversations with Salesforce and Slack and, and a few others, um, Salesforce gets hit with an, investiga an investigation by the Department of Justice for antitrust. Um, and so you can imagine all of a sudden us not being a priority in those conversations. So in like a matter of a month, my mental state went from, oh, cool, we're going to have an exit or I'm going to have an exit with you know two companies to now maybe nothing is going to happen. And so for that year, went back to work. We... The Tula team duped out um, the lawsuit and got the business in order at the time business continued to grow and grow. And so we then eventually a year later, later got back to the M&A market. And in the case of troops, investigation subsides. By that time, we knew that um, we would have an opportunity to partner with a bigger company. The business was in really good shape and felt like um, 
given the new attention in and on that category, we were either going to have to and want to fill up our war chest with cash or work with a bigger company. Um, and so as time went on, those M&A conversations picked up again and um, without getting too much into the weeds, both ultimately got over the finish line. But you can imagine the mental and emotional stress thinking you're going to go from uh, exit to not exit to exit to not exit times two. Meanwhile, the executive teams at both companies are also along for this emotional roller coaster. And so now you're not only managing your own emotional psyche, but you're also managing the emotional psyche of a team that have also not gone through this before. And so for, for me, I have lived through this before. And even when you've lived through this before, it is exhausting emotionally, mentally. And now you magnify that by the number of humans that are part of this. And yeah, for sure, it was the most stressful professional moment of my life. But like any founder or executive or a good operator or employee, in those moments, back to engineering, as hard as the problem or equation may be, all you can do is work to solve it. And so you just kind of have to compartmentalize and recognize that, yes, this is emotionally stressful, but you just simply acknowledge that stress and you kind of like put it over there and you just go back to work and try to figure it out and, and, and solve the problem. That's really all you can do. And, and that's what I did for, uh, you know, over a year working from home during COVID with my four and two year old banging on the door wall in negotiation with a bunch of these conversations. So yeah, really, really wild time. Much easier said than done to compartmentalize and just be like, all right, I just got to solve this problem. So I feel like there's some parallels that a lot of companies are experiencing right now who there was all these companies that were pre-IPO companies that were about to go public before the markets crashed. You know, we don't have to name them. There was a ton of them. Um, and I think a lot of those companies are reeling for exactly the reason you said is they now have all these executives who are bought in on a vision of, you know, we're going to go public at this date. You know, we're going to be a public company. We're going to have this big event, rah, rah. And then that gets taken away. And, you know, there's this feeling of, you know, momentum loss and motivation loss. How did you keep the team rallied behind you? Um, Cause I imagine, you know, not being as invested as as you as a co-founder, it it might might have been type tempting for them to jump ship um, once that outcome that they were hoping for is uh, is taken away. So for me, we would always just con- in those moments we would always continue to point to the really great things happening in the business. And so with both of those companies, the customer feedback and reactions we were getting was incredible and phenomenal. In the case of Troops, it wasn't, it was not only that the customer feedback was phenomenal, it was then immediately all at once, we had this pretty seismic shift in the ecosystem where we went from uh, a company telling the world that this is the place where you do work to now acquiring this other company and acknowledging what we had been saying for five years, which is actually, no, this is the place you do work and this is the so that, that uh, change in trend for us in that example happened pretty suddenly. 
And simultaneously, we had all the proof points from our customers to, to suggest um, not only were we early, but this is going to accelerate pretty quickly. And it was really just day one for us. And again, I think that was true in both companies. Mm-hmm. And so we would have conversations around the fact like, look, we have to duke it out. But whatever happens, we have a great business ahead of us and we have a really great opportunity. And that is the thing to stay focused on. And for sure, it was hard for people to do that. But we had to and we did and we were able to get through it. It's it's tough. Uh, it shows that the mental toughness for sure. I think we're all getting put to to the test over these these years, uh, earning earning some stripes. Uh, times were good for for a long time. So um, that that probably allowed you to will allow you to weather more of these storms that come because you've kind of you know been through it uh, before. Now that this next question, which is a big one, um, so we get a lot of founders that are listening to this. You've had three acquisitions that's incredibly rare do you want to spend a little bit of time talking about like how those were teed up did you approach the uh company that ultimately acquired you was this more of a partnership like the troop salesforce one makes sense you were like deeply ingrained there is it a partnership that they basically become such a big partner that they acquire you was this a random inbound? Like, how does this actually happen if I'm thinking as a founder and maybe looking for an exit? Well, let's start with the meta point and the commonality across all three, which is in every single one of those scenarios, um, they all happen because there was a relationship in play. Um, and in all of those scenarios, there is a sales dimension in play, whether um and a negotiation piece. So, and so for any sales executive or revenue executive, you know what that looks like in your own sales calls. So there's a dimension of push and pull, um, showing some of your cards, not all of your cards, both ways. And, and so in the case of Spinback, we were building a product that helped online brands and retailers measure how much money they were making from Facebook. We were very small, um, maybe six, six, person team at the time. And, and so we were fundamentally an analytics company, small customer base, and we were gearing up to raise money. Um, but we also knew that there were a few other companies out there that were complementary in that they had what we did not. Um, they had reach, they had publishing tools. This is when social media was really blowing up. We thought that of that cohort, this company, Buddy Media, was the best partner or could be the best partner for us. And so we engage in partnership conversations um, where we could complement their product with our analytics and they can potentially be a referral engine for for us, for customers. Because we had done a deal like that with a previous partner from that space and it worked really well. And because things were working with that previous partner, we were in a position to raise money from uh, from VCs. We had a term sheet signed and ready to go. And that quickly uh, became a conversation around hey, guys, don't go raise money. Um, this is with Buddy Media. Why don't you co-partner with us, add fuel to the fire, and we'll build a big, bigger company together. Um, and so in short, we did that. We merged with Buddy Media, and about 13 months later, we sold Buddy Media to Salesforce. Um, and that also anchors you on a price too, right? Because you you were going, I imagine, to raise at a certain valuation. Was that helpful? And did you get like a term sheet first? We had it from an investor first, and... Then Mike from Buddy Media was like, no, 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 you should come and do this with us. And 
Um, and we did, and I'm glad we did because Mike and Cass are amazing and it was exactly the outcome we thought would happen. And, and part of the thinking there was re rewinding the clock. At the time, Facebook was about a $100 billion market cap. And we were, were like, hmm. And they were getting ready to go public in a quarter or two. So we, we remember thinking, you know, Facebook will probably go public for about $100 billion. And when that does happen, the market may look at the space and say, okay, who's the leading B2B platform on Facebook monetizing this thing? And what's that worth? Is it like half a percentage point, 1%, 5%? Like maybe it's like 1%, maybe mm -hmm. conservatively, billion dollars. So we're like, okay, even if it's that number, we should probably go do this deal because it was at least for us a cash and stock deal. And yeah, 13 months later, Buddy Media gets acquired for call it 800 to a billion dollars. And so the prediction was pretty accurate. And, um, you know, it was a great learning and it was great. It was a great learning experience. So that was um, the first, call it more public uh, exit that I experienced. And I had one, one in college too, but that was more of a private sale, less relevant. So that was the first. The second with Tula, um, or the third, but with, with Tula, it was a little bit different in that um, we knew that we wanted to be deliberate in running a sales process for that company once we got to a specific milestone in sales. More like the private equity playbook, which is you take from year to year and you get it ready to sell the company. And we were aligned with that strategy. So that was much simpler in that we executed incredibly well. Large credit to the Tula team running that thing day to day. We got it to the place we wanted to get it to and we hired a banker and we ran a process and picked a winner and got it over the finish line. And again, I'm removing all the crazy in between highs and lows that permeated that process. Um, but even then, there were pre-existing relationships that uh, the Tula CEO had built up over the course of two years, if not more, with all the could-be, would-be buyers. So by that time, we went into process. People knew who we were, what we stood for, what our products were, where we were going, where we were not going. Um, so that precedent existed for, for our business. Um, and in the case of, of, of Troops, when we were building the company, we had this thesis to have messaging first, B2B software. Instead of logging into fields, forms, buttons, and boxes, it should be about messaging. And we actually started to build our own messaging first product at Troops. Um, and I remember in about one week, this other startup launched three things in a week. They launched um, or announced rather their growth numbers. They announced an $80 million fund, and then they announced an open developer platform. And when that happened, we were like, hmm, this startup called Slack is pretty interesting. Maybe we should make a bigger bet and go all in and build on top of this platform. Because to me, at least, it felt like Facebook all over again, but instead of in the B2C world, in the B2B world. And so we did that. I think we were the first venture-backed company to go all in. And uh, as a result of doing that, we were able to raise a little bit of money from the Slack fund. I think we were the first Series A, Series B and follow-on investment. And with that, we went to work, built an even better product, and eventually got Slack to be a customer, and then eventually got Salesforce to be a customer. And so um, by the time we were having those conversations, we were a known quantity because we were powering and running the entire revenue operation for Slack. In fact, 
when Slack went public with their direct listing, um, we were not only invited to the New York Stock Exchange to participate in that day, which was really amazing for us, way more amazing for them. But um, I remember Stuart would talk about us on pretty much all the earnings calls and talk about how Troops was really kind of exhibit A for representing the power of the platform and how Slack was not just this messaging or chat thing, but really an automation and workflow platform that can facilitate and orchestrate these really mission critical business processes, starting with, you know, uh, database products like Salesforce. So we had a history working with them. It also helped that some of the people we ultimately worked really closely with at Salesforce were part of Buddy Media, so that helped. But back to kind of my comment earlier, in all of those scenarios, there was a relationship dynamic. And advice I give to founders often that are thinking about M&A is that companies don't buy companies, people at companies buy companies. And oftentimes you don't know who those people are, so you have to just get out there and meet with them. And most of the time, you also don't know what they're working on or what's important to them. And the only way to really figure that out is to go and have the conversations and hear what is important to them, what their goals and objectives are, um, what's strategic in their quarterly or yearly roadmap. And through that line of inquisition and questioning, surprise, surprise, it looks and feels very much like a sales conversation in that you're trying to understand one another so that you can get to the most mutually beneficial outcome if there is an outcome to get to. Incredibly uh, helpful for any listener that is looking to potentially sell a company. You know, we all see the TechCrunch articles and, you know, it all looks great, but very rarely do you get to actually understand the dynamics of how do these things start? How do they actually go down? And I love that line about companies don't buy companies people buy companies. And I think that's the same, you know, people, companies don't buy software, you know, people buy that, that software. So keeping that in mind, uh, whether you're acquiring customers or trying to sell a business is huge. Uh, thanks for sharing it, man. And, uh, I'm sure if I have you on this podcast in five years, there'll be three to five more, uh, acquisitions under your belt to, to talk about. It sounds like you're not stopping anytime soon. I don't think so. I can't help myself so much fun. Hell yeah. Uh, well, Dan, as we sort of wrap up, I always ask two of the same same questions, and they are intentionally vague, so you can take them anywhere you want. Um, but the first question is, what is one thing that founders or revenue leaders believe to be true today that you think is bullshit or no longer serving us? So we touched on this already and speaking to some outreach guys, you might not, you might not like what I'm going to say, but I think email marketing is, is kind of dead. You know, I can't even count how many cold emails I just got this morning, let alone this week that all look and feel the same. And when you layer on now AI and machines writing them for you, like, and, and the fact that email and the marginal cost to send an email is like zero, it is just, um, I'm not buying anything, certainly not easily through a cold email these days. Hot take, hot take, but it's one that is widely, widely shared. Do you have any guess what's going to replace this? Like this, these are, this how a lot of businesses were built. Like that was a huge channel for 
all these behemoth software companies that we see? Do you have any guess on what's going to replace that big part of the funnel? Yeah, I think I think just you know look no further than what's happening in the consumer world. I think just B two B world is is lagging in in adapting some of those marketing tactics. But again, we touch on some of that influencer marketing, but. You'll see more of that in LinkedIn and TikTok. There will be new mediums that pop up, but I think leaning into that more heavily will make up for some of the noise that exists in email. Because again, it is so saturated and noisy today everywhere. And so how do you cut through the noise? You're going to go have the conversations with people you trust and ask them for referral and advice. And so whoever leans in heavily into that, modality, I think we'll win. And we're seeing it. Yeah. Influencer marketing, the rise of community, going back to like super high quality content, you know, if you're going to send an email, make it a super valuable newsletter instead of some shitty, you know, email that's going to, you know, ask me for, for time before providing any value. Um, yeah, I, I like it. So let us know listeners what, what you think is the, the future of, of email marketing and kind of the, the BD function as we know it today. Uh, final question is that one, but flipped a little more on a, a positive light. What's one, call it sales, marketing, growth strategy that uh, is working for you or any other companies that you're involved with uh, today? So um, I, would, I would twist it less about what's a growth strategy, but like a strategy that works for me, period, in any uh, endeavor or thing I'm doing that day is just a practice of gratitude. So this might sound cheesy, but I'll share it anyway. Every morning I have a bit of a template I start my day with. And the first part of that are three things I'm grateful for. Um, and then I have a to-do list and some ideas that I jot down, but I do that almost without fail. And the reason that's important is because you will undoubtedly have things go wrong in your day. That'll just be really shitty. If you're a salesperson, you will get rejected. If you are a customer success person, you will have a customer that's pissed at you and on and on and on. But if, if uh, by grounding yourself with things that really matter to you and you're really grateful for when those things don't go quite well, it just gives you that perspective of what really matters and what doesn't. I mentioned ski patrol early, earlier, uh, and, I, and, I've talk, and I've talked about this before, but like when I go out to work on the hill as a patroller, as a medic, you see all these people that go out to have a great day skiing. They think they're going to go do a few runs, have lunch, maybe do a few more runs and then get, go to operate ski and have a few beers with friends. And some of those people don't make it through the day. Like they'll hit a tree and they'll die upon impact or they'll go off a jump and crack their skull open literally. And I've seen these things. And when you have that perspective and you juxtapose it with whatever bullshit's going on at work, like it doesn't fucking matter. And when you have that perspective, it helps you be, um, I think just better at work because you know how much that doesn't matter and you can go about it more objectively and more robotically. And therefore um, I think execute better because it's, more about problem solution and you strip out the emotions from whatever it is that you're doing or the rejection you're getting or the piss off customer. So that idea and exercise of gratitude every day really grounds me at least and gives me the perspective to be successful in whatever I'm working on. That's the real stuff. That's the the timeless advice for no matter where you are in your career, wherever you are for 
building your business, uh, I do the same thing. I have a gratitude uh, journal as well, and it is incredibly helpful. You know, when you when you're doing hard things, I've, I've always found that people that are happy doing hard things. There are people that do hard things and they're miserable, but people that are happy doing hard things, their personal growth has matched their professional growth, you know, and that's finding time for gratitude, finding time to meditate, finding time to eat healthy, all of those things. I I don't think it's possible to build a great business and be happy doing it without taking care of all that other stuff, which is the real game we're all playing is, you know, how do we, how do we stay happy? How do we support people around us? How do we enjoy what we're doing? That's, that's the real game. People that I found that people that chase happiness will find success. And the people that chase success most of the time, never find happiness. I like that line. I think that's a perfect place to, to wrap up. Uh, Dan, thank you so much, man. Thanks for sharing your, your story. You've had incredible runs, excited to, Continue to watch you uh, build businesses. And uh, for all those listeners that joined us, uh, I always say it, but listening is one thing. Uh, you know, taking some of these lessons and actually applying it to your world is a whole other thing. So um, make sure you make that happen. And we'll see you next week. Oh, thanks, Scott.